So with that, we are going to be starting a new series today, and I'm going to be testing out my brand new bifocals, <laughs> progressive lenses, my over 40 glasses. And our sermon series is called It Takes a Village, Empathy, Wonder, and Inclusion. And so we're going to be talking about how we can be a community that fosters a healthy spirituality that can be passed down to the next generation. And so in the series, we're going to be hearing from Ken next week, and then we're also going to hear from Susan, who's one of our children's co-directors, and as well as Cassie, our, our worship leader here. Um, and all of them have kids of various ages and have had to think about how to help them form a spiritual framework for making their own decisions in life. But I kind of wanted to open the series as a person who doesn't have kids, because I was not married until I was 36. And I remember sometimes when I would visit churches, I would kind of get this little gut-sinking feeling. Once um, I visited ones that just felt like they were mostly focused on kids or on families with kids, and I don't want to speak for all adults by any means, especially single adults, but I remember it would sometimes make me feel like maybe I didn't have a place there. And so I just want to name that feeling without judging that at all and tell you that we're trying to aim to strike a balance between including kids in our services and talking about their importance and embracing their full belonging and their gifts and then balancing that also so that we're not focusing so much on families that people who don't have kids and that sometimes comes with a variety of emotions or various um, reasons attached to it so that they also feel included. So I'm putting that whole caveat on here because we're actually doing this sermon series is kind of on kids. And we don't usually do that. But my hope is that in these four weeks that we can all gain some insights into how we consider our own faith journeys. Because I think at its core what this sermon series is actually about is how to help us sort healthy spirituality from unhealthy spirituality so that we can then hopefully hand down a more helpful spirituality to the generations who come after us, right? So we certainly will not get everything right, but I think that we can learn from our experiences and we can learn to look around and see what kind of results that our faith yields. So I, like probably some of you here, have at times just kind of barely managed to hold on to my faith tradition either because of the way it was presented to me or because of the results that it produced for me personally, um, as well as just looking around at our, our wider national landscape. And yet, in spite of all of that, I've also experienced something that for me, it feels real and it's deeply meaningful and it's been really precious enough in my life that I think that it's worth following Jesus and of leaning into that in spite of all of the junk that can sometimes come along. So I was reading just this last week a blog post um, by a millennial, and that blog post was called Anything But Christian, Why Millennials Leave the Church. Now, I'm not a pastor who feels a whole lot of alarm when I read about younger people leaving the church. Um, I think that a lot of millennials are actually casting off a faith tradition that's become so intertwined with Christian nationalism that's driven by racism and patriarchy. I actually think that casting that off is a healthy response when we leave such spaces. But I wanna read you a good bit of this blog post, and this millennial's name is Emma Cooper, because in it, I think she captures a longing here for an authentic spirituality in a really honest way that could be constructive for us. So here's what she writes. She says, by now, it's no secret that non-religious millennials have no interest in Christianity. In fact, at least 35% of millennials are anti-church. And I just want to note that that's from an old Pew study from 2013. And so I do wonder if that has gotten higher. But she writes, what about us? 
What about the youths that you raise? We're the ones who attended youth group regularly. We laughed hysterically while racing Oreos off our foreheads. Raise your hand if you did that. We listened to sermons. We cried at youth retreats with our hands lifted high. We professed Jesus Christ and we said, though none go with me, still I will follow. And now, we don't follow. Why should we be Christian? We see Christian fathers who verbally abuse their sons and we see Christian women so shriveled and insecure that we wonder if there's still a person left in there. We see Christian pastors who molest girls and boys in their congregation. This is what we see. Many of the non-Christians we know are far more loving and far more alive. And if no Christ has made them people we'd love to be while Christianity creates people we beg never to be, then why should we be Christians? That's a great question, Emma. She says, we crave the divine. We crave something infinitely beyond human. We crave God. And when we walk into your churches, we're on tiptoe, we're dying of thirst. We're willing to die for a finger brush with the divine, I believe. I believe when it comes to the millennial exodus, we have it backwards. I agree with her. She says, the millennial exodus is not a disease, it's a symptom of the disease. The church in America has a plastic prop up of Jesus and we're not interested in your churches because as much as we need him to be, God is not there. Don't get me wrong, you have something nice, but it's not enough to make us drop our nets. We're looking for God elsewhere because we're not finding God with you. Now, I didn't read this, this blog post to try and paint a picture of like, those are what those other churches are out there and they're doing it wrong and here's how we're doing it right. But I read it to suggest that this young woman's voice is from a lot of what I've been reading and hearing. It's emblematic, I think, of a good portion of her generation. And I think many of us know people and some of us are those people who have left organized religion, I did this for a time, but who quietly nurse broken hearts because of it. Because there's something about Jesus that we treasure in our lives but we can't quite seem to mesh that Jesus with the people who are claiming to represent him. And they're not the only generation to have done this, right? To evaluate their faith traditions and their rituals by how much good they do in the world. That's actually how scripture teaches us to assess our spirituality. So I was reading through a few chapters of the prophet Isaiah this week. So, you know, we had like two mass shootings back to back. And sometimes when I'm in like kind of an apocalyptic mindset, when I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, I sometimes go to the writings of the prophets because the prophets remind me that God is on the side of the oppressed and when things are hard, God is still there. And so for my own comfort, just last Monday, I was reading in Isaiah 58 where God is mad at God's followers for making a show of fasting and praying and being all religious while at the same time treating people poorly. And here's what Isaiah says. Why have we fasted, they say, and you, God, haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? And God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you go and you exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Right, so God's saying, you think you can go to religious services and you can act all religious and then you can go out and harm people the rest of the week and expect me to be okay with that. I'm not. And then God goes on to say, it's not this the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor and the wanderer with shelter and to when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then your light will break forth 
It'll break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. In other words, God will be with you. And when you call, the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and I will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the finger pointing and with the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will arise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. So what I'm hearing here from Isaiah is that religion alone won't bring peace and happiness to a people. And then in fact, religion misused can actually bring real harm. But Isaiah is reminding us that if our faith is underlined with care for the oppressed and the poor, and if it's marked by peacemaking, that that's when damaged communities can start to heal. And he says it'll heal quickly. And that's hopeful. He says, but if you don't do these things, it might not go well for you. And I think Jesus says something really similar in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He cautions us, he cautions us against practicing our faith in ways that say, look at me, look how spiritual I am, while at the same time neglecting care for the vulnerable. So I think that seems like one helpful guideline for evaluating a healthy faith, right? Does it produce empathy and care and justice for the poor and the vulnerable people in your life? And then after saying this, Jesus goes on to give some guidelines that I think are helpful for us in evaluating our own spirituality. And so it's in this vein that we've tried to create like a children's curriculum and a youth curriculum that we hope will give our kids, one, a healthy spirituality that they can take with them into adulthood, and two, some kind of scaffolding from which they can examine their own faith traditions as well as the traditions of others, right? So they have some questions they can ask themselves throughout their lives. And so we focus on three core values in our church, including in the Sunday school classes that we think summarize these. And those three values are empathy, inclusion, and wonder. Empathy, inclusion, and wonder. Right, so we focus our teachers and our curriculum and the lessons and the classroom experience to encourage children to develop these central values that we think are core to our faith. So we're gonna look at the Sermon on the Mount in some detail today. The Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know, is um, probably Jesus' longest recorded sermon. It's found in Matthew's chapters five to seven, and it's a shorter version in Luke. And so Jesus is preaching to a crowd, and they're gathered around him, and he gives them some guidelines for how to evaluate um, how they shape their spiritual lives. And the first one is this. He says, don't be anxious. Don't operate out of fear. Right? He says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet our heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor dressed like one of these. Seek first God's good's realm and God's righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I think in this we also see, besides Jesus saying, don't be anxious, don't be fearful, but we also see wonder as part of Jesus' spirituality. Right? He's saying, look at the birds, look at the flowers, meditate on nature, wonder about it, learn from it. 
Right? So in our Sunday school classes, we promote the practices of curiosity and delight and gratitude. And all of those in turn nurture our capacity to wonder. Right? So we frequently take time to express gratitude for big things and small things. And we encourage the natural curiosity of kids. So a common question that we ask in response to a story or a scripture is, I wonder how a particular character felt when this happened. Right? And then we honor the curiosity as the kids wonder. And sometimes they wonder some really funny things if, if Molly Morton's stories can be believed. <laughs> right? So we're, we're, we're hoping more for their curiosity to be fostered rather than fishing for right answers from them. Right? So in that blog post that we read earlier in a section that I, I skipped, the author writes, she says, we millennials, we want something that will finally give us the answer. And I read that, I thought, well, if anybody says they've got the answer, they're probably selling you something. And my thought was something that we say a lot around here, and that's, I think we need connection more than we need answers. And I believe that if we're seeking out a connection with this God who is love, then love will be found, and love will guide us more than thinking that we have the right answers. The Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Like that's one of, it's a short verse, it's one that's worth memorizing. Perfect love casts out fear. Because when we're concerned with getting everything right in faith and then turning around and telling other people what we think is right, I think that's operating out of a place of fear. It's a fear of getting things wrong, it's a fear of not belonging. Right? In effect, what that does is it just draws a circle around us and it says, okay, well, if you believe the right things, then you're in. And if you believe differently, then you're out. And that kind of spirituality is an approach that's born out of the fear of not being included, right? Like if we can just get the right thing and understand it, then we'll belong. But we think fear shouldn't be the starting point. That when we use love as our compass, then we can take a more non-anxious approach, um, both to the faith as well as to other people. And love invites us to wonder and to ask hard questions in safety without being scared that something is going to exempt us from the community of faith, right? It makes space for people like my friend Josh, who spoke last weekend. I don't know if some of you heard Josh. I, I've been friends with him almost 20 years. He's one of my favorite people. And he would say he's an atheist, but with a mystical bent, who believes in creating healthy faith communities. And he believes that that's really important. He had a pretty toxic um, religious upbringing. And this is like, that is, up, that is God's space. You know, Josh is as much a part of my community as, as um, he is in mine. And Jesus goes on to tell us not to judge others. He says, don't judge or you too will be judged. This is one of the, the verses that I hate the most because it's the most challenging to me. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you don't pay attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in yours? You hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Right, so again, Jesus is telling us not to judge who's in and who's out of God's family, that that's his job, not ours. And so practicing radical inclusion is a sign of God's good realm. It's the reason that we have this ritual of taking communion every single Sunday. Because when we come to the table to take communion, it reminds us that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're at on our faith journey, we are all of us invited to the table of God. And that in practicing that kind of wide invitation, it might cost us, right? It might cost us our bodies broken, our blood shed, 
just as it cost Jesus his life. I know many of you know our church began as a response to the plight of queer people being subjected to exclusion and shaming and stigmatization in the evangelical church context. And our queer people, including me, felt that stigmatization acutely. And I know many of you who are straight also experienced many losses of connection and relationship. Right? So inclusion, when we talk about that as a value, that's not like an abstract concern for us. It's like a core value of justice. And I think the experience that we went through was really kind of a tutorial in the need to practice inclusion in all kinds of different sorts of diversity. I know I learned a lot. So diversity like race, gender, ethnicity, differing abilities. I've been learning more about neurodiversity. That was not really on my radar until Jen Piotrowski, who I don't see this morning, she gave this really great um, workshop to our Sunday school teachers and some other leaders um, earlier this spring, and it was incredibly eye-opening. So we're always looking for ways for all of our students in Sunday school for us to make space for the people who routinely experience othering in the form of discrimination and prejudice and scrutiny. And we make no claims to be fully woke, but we are waking up and we are eager to work for a more just world and to create that and model that for our kids. And then Jesus goes on, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And that is, he's like, well, let me just end it with this. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. All right, so this is why we hold empathy as such a strong value. You know, there's something that's a little bit odd that's happening in our culture and that I feel like you hear empathy talked about a lot. And we, we say it's one of those things that we need to develop, but people are actually quantifiably showing it less. There was a landmark study that was actually done here at U of M about two or three years ago that was showing that um, the younger generations are actually practicing and experiencing empathy less. So in Sunday school, we pay special attention to trying to encourage empathy building and teaching those skills, like considering the perspectives and the feelings of other people and using our imaginations to place ourselves in the position of another person and pausing to ask, how would this person in this situation or in real life, as well as in a story, how would they feel? And have you ever felt like that? And we have to be able to imagine how others feel in order to ask whether or not we'd want to be treated the same way, right? How would this make my neighbor feel? Would I want to be treated the way I'm treating them? And there's a long-time Christian discipline of meditating on Scripture while imagining yourself as various characters in the story, Right, so if you've never tried doing that, I would recommend that um, as kind of a fun thing to try this week. So what you do is you take any story in the scripture and you place yourself as one of the people in that story and read it and imagine, okay, what would things look like? Where am I situated in the room where this is happening? What does it feel like when this is said? And then you start over, but you place yourself in the position of another person or maybe even of an animal that's in that story and just see if there's some different insights that unfold. So we think that empathy, inclusion, and wonder are the three things that really capture the essence of what Jesus is describing about what makes up a thriving faith that helps us steer clear of some of the usual human pitfalls. Right, so Jesus gives these guidelines and then right after that he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And by their fruit you will recognize them. Every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. 
Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, he's talking about the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we drive out demons and didn't we perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I mean, that's pretty blunt. I never knew you. Right, so in other words, you can look around and sound as religious as you like, but just because you slap the name of Jesus on something doesn't necessarily mean you're operating out of the Holy Spirit of love, and I think we can all say amen to that. So how do we know that something's of God? Isaiah tells us to ask, does it produce justice? Both Jesus and Paul tell us to discern things by their fruit, by what they produce. Do your beliefs and your practices produce love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And right now, many millennials and many of us, millennial or not, I'm an Xer, we're looking around and we're saying, you know what, a lot of what markets itself as Christianity is not displaying these things. Instead, it's displaying fear and judgment and exclusion and a lack of empathy. And Jesus says good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. So sometimes you have to sit down and you have to wait for a while to determine if something is of God or not, in yourself or in others. And you have to watch that fruit ripen and unfold. And then if you find that you're walking down the wrong path and the fruit is bad, we're called to repent. And repent just means turn around, right? So turn around and follow the narrow path. Start to eat from the tree that bears good fruit. And we just end by saying it takes a village to shape a community around these things, empathy, inclusion, and wonder. And our kids need to see adults modeling these things and making mistakes and doing our best to amend them and then striving to do better. So our Sunday school teachers and our youth group leaders, these are like the hands-on-the-ground leaders who are doing this with the kids week after week. And it all, but it also takes all of us embodying these values. And then hopefully we can give tools to the kids that will help produce better fruit than what we're currently seeing in a lot of the American church. And I would tell you that if you're inspired to be one of these hands-on-the-ground people, please consider helping out in Sunday school or being one of those pre-reader teachers, and that would be lovely. So as we move into our meditation time, we often take two to three minutes of either just silence or guided meditation. I'm going to do a guided meditation, and let's start by just making ourselves comfortable, taking a couple of deep breaths. Often I find it helpful to you know, just imagine myself someplace um, that feels really comfortable for me, maybe outside enjoying nature, but wherever your, your safe place is. Just focus on that. So in all of us, I think there are parts that produce good fruit and parts that produce bad fruit. So I want to invite you to imagine a part of you that maybe isn't producing um, fruit that's as good as you hope it could be. And let's spend a moment just identifying that.
And as you're sitting there identifying something that maybe is producing less than helpful effects in your life, just imagine that Jesus comes up and sits down beside you. imagine presenting that aspect of ourselves or that situation that we're thinking of to Jesus and in a way what you know is he, he doesn't get anxious or upset right there's no stress about this thing keeping you away from him but just just kind of present it and sit there with him with it Maybe Jesus just says, yeah, I know. I still love you. And then let's make some space if you'd like to maybe ask him if there's some different ways that you could approach this part of you or this situation that might produce some better, some better fruit, so to speak. Jesus, we thank you for the space to be able to be fully ourselves, to make mistakes, to not be perfect humans and to still be just fully embraced by you in your love. We thank you so much for the grace that just allows us to be human and also the grace that lets us still sit beside you and talk to you and hear from you. And so Jesus, um, even if there wasn't enough space for some of us to maybe get particular guidance, I ask that you would be speaking to us here in the coming week that as we're talking to you about these different parts of our lives that we would experience a real and tangible guidance from the spirit of love. And I ask that you would teach us um, within ourselves even, Lord, to evaluate our own spirituality and to give our own selves grace to ask questions and to make space for, for doubt or for reconsidering different parts of us while still feeling held in your grace and in your love. I ask that our lives would produce good fruit, especially in this time where it feels like things are so anxious and so tense in our wider landscape, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to just very practically love the people who are right near us, our neighbors. And we ask that in that, your love would be known 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.